0: We read the Bible this morning in Book of Acts, Chapter 1. We read this portion of Scripture in connection with the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 18, which teaches us concerning the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. Here in Acts, Chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, we find the narrative of that event. The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days. And speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God and being assembled together with them commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem but wait for the promise of the Father which saith he ye have heard of me for John truly baptized with water but ye shall be baptized with the holy ghost not many days hence When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, And in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, about a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room, where abode both Peter and James and John. Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Zelotes, and Judas, the brother of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication, with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. We read God's word that far. The Heidelberg Catechism teaches us about the ascension of Christ in Lord's Day 18. We turn to that now in the back of the Psalter. Lord's Day 18 is on page 10 in the back of the Psalter. There we read these words. How dost thou understand these words? He ascended into heaven. That Christ, in sight of his disciples, was taken up From earth into heaven, and that he continues there for our interest until he comes again to judge the quick and the dead. Is not Christ then with us even unto the end of the world as he hath promised? Christ is very man and very God. With respect to his human nature, he is no more on earth, but with respect to his Godhead, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is at no time absent from us. But if his human nature is not present wherever his Godhead is, are not then these two natures in Christ separated from one another? Not at all. For since the Godhead is illimitable and omnipresent, it must necessarily follow that the same is beyond the limits of the human nature that he assumed, and yet is nevertheless in this human nature and remains personally united to it. Of what advantage to us is Christ's ascension into heaven? First, that he is our advocate in the presence of his Father in heaven. Secondly, that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he as the head will also take up to himself us his members. Thirdly, that he sends us his Spirit as an earnest, by whose power we seek the things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, and not things on the earth. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, part of our confession as christians is that our lord jesus ascended into heaven those who deny that jesus arose from the dead as you can well imagine also deny that he ascended into heaven after all if jesus did not arise from the dead how could he ascend into heaven And so these same people who deny the resurrection, saying that this was just a myth that was concocted by the disciples or some kind of vision that they saw, say the same with regard to the ascension, that it was some kind of myth or vision, but that it did not actually happen. As Christians, we believe that our Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. That really happened in time and space. By the time of the Reformation, there was widespread belief in the ascension of Jesus Christ, just as there was widespread belief in the resurrection in the Christian lands. However, although there was widespread belief in the fact of the ascension, there was not widespread agreement about the meaning of the ascension. In fact, among Protestants, there was a sharp disagreement about the meaning of the ascension of Jesus Christ, about how we are to understand that event. And that sharp disagreement was due to the fact that the great reformer Martin Luther himself had a strong view about the Lord's Supper, about which he would not budge. When the Lord Jesus said about the bread, this is my body and the wine, this is my blood, Martin Luther insisted that must be interpreted literally. (laughs) We are eating the literal body and drinking the literal blood of Christ. But how can that be, if Christ ascended up into heaven? And so, in service to his peculiar doctrine of the Lord's Supper, Martin Luther was led to corrupt the meaning of the ascension of Jesus Christ and to teach an error in that regard. The followers of Luther after him in the Lutheran Church, for the most part, agreed with him and also taught the error that Martin Luther taught in regard to the Ascension. And I will indicate what that error was in the sermon. But in the city of Heidelberg, and in that province of Germany, the controversy was very sharp between the Lutherans and the Reformed, and the ruler of that province did not want his province to become Lutheran, but he wanted it to become Reformed and to remain Reformed. And that was, in fact, one of the motivations for the writing of the Heidelberg Catechism itself, to write this very Lord's Day in order to defend and to maintain the truth of the ascension of Christ over against this error of the Lutherans that was very prevalent in the provinces of Germany at that time, in the 1560s. The Lord's Day 18 not only teaches us the truth of the ascension over against that Lutheran error, but it also teaches us, as the Heidelberg Catechism always does, in a very warm and personal way, in a very comforting way, what is the advantage of this truth to us as Christians? And it mentions three advantages, which we will also explain in the sermon. So let's consider together the ascension of Jesus Christ, We notice, first of all, the meaning of his ascension. Secondly, his natures in the ascension. Finally, his presence with us after the ascension. I believe that Jesus Christ ascended up into heaven. I believe that. You believe that. Even though we did not see it happen with our eyes. We were not there like the disciples we did not see Jesus go up, and yet we believe that it really happened. How can that be? How can it be that we believe this? After all, we've never seen a man ascend up into heaven with our eyes. We've, just as we've never seen a man rise from the dead with our eyes, we've never seen a man ascend up into heaven. Now, we've seen many things. And in this modern world, we've seen many extraordinary things, haven't we? Things that we don't even consider extraordinary anymore. We've seen men ascend up into heaven in airplanes. We've seen men ascend up into heaven in helicopters. We've seen men ascend far up into heaven in rockets and space shuttles and to go up into the firmament and into the atmosphere and beyond the atmosphere all the way to the moon. And we're aware of men sending rockets and ships and satellites far into the solar system And yet, in all of the modern things of our world, we've never seen a man ascend up into heaven by his own power and by his own strength, without any aid of machines of any kind. We've never seen that. And yet, we believe that our Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. We believe that. We believe that because God reveals it to us in the Holy Scriptures. Not because we've seen such things, but because God reveals it to us in the Scriptures. God, in his word, tells us Jesus ascended into heaven. God tells us that. Jesus himself prophesied that this would happen to his disciples, especially in the book of John In John 14, 15, 16, Jesus told his disciples, before he even died on the cross, Now I am going to him who sent me. Now I go my way to the Father who sent me into this world in the first place. I'm going to him. I'm going back to him. I'm going back to the place where I came from. In just a little while, he said, you will not see me anymore. You will look for me. The world will look for me. But you will not find me because I'm going to him who sent me. Luke testifies in the gospel according to Luke and in the book of Acts of the actual event that happened. Luke tells us by divine inspiration that after Jesus appeared to many for 40 days after his resurrection, he appeared one last time to his disciples. Having appeared to them in Jerusalem, having appeared to them in Galilee, he now appeared to them again in Jerusalem. And he spoke to them about the things of the kingdom of God. One last time, he gave them final instructions. He made final remarks. And he said, now come, come with me. And he led them out of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives again, toward the city of Bethany. And there on the Mount of Olives, Jesus was teaching them that in just a few days, the promise of the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And as Jesus was making those last remarks, he suddenly lifted up his hands and he started to bless them. He started to pronounce upon them the benediction, grace, mercy, peace be unto you. And as he was blessing them, Luke tells us, he began to rise up before their very eyes of his own power and by his own strength he began to go up, 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 right there in the air in front of them. He continued to go up before their eyes and they watched as he ascended higher and higher, still his hands outlifted, blessing them higher and higher and higher into the sky until finally a cloud came under his feet and he vanished out of their sight. And the disciples continued to look up into that cloudy sky, scanning the heavens, scanning the clouds, looking for him. And suddenly two angels appeared next to them and said, Men of Galilee, what are you looking at? This Jesus, this same Jesus who went up, will come back in the same way that you have seen him go up. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. That was the ascension Of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Heidelberg Catechism explains the meaning of this great event in these words that Christ, in the sight of his disciples, was taken up from earth into heaven, and that he continues there for our interest until he comes again to judge the quick and the dead. The meaning of the ascension of Jesus Christ is not merely that he ascended up into the firmament, into the atmosphere, into the clouds, into the sky. He did. He ascended up into the sky, into the clouds, but that's not the whole meaning of the ascension. Or that Jesus ascended up beyond the clouds, beyond the firmament, into outer space, into what the scriptures probably mean when they refer to the heaven of heavens. But the ascension means that Jesus Christ ascended up beyond these heavens to the highest heaven, what Paul calls the third heaven, the spiritual heaven where God dwells, where God sits on his throne surrounded by angels and saints who have gone before us. Stand before God day and night, shouting and singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And there is this bright, beautiful, glorious splendor of the majesty of God sitting on His throne. It was to that place that Jesus Christ ascended. And that's why the ascension of Christ is a great wonder, a great miracle, just like the incarnation was a great miracle. And the resurrection, so the ascension was a wonder, a miracle. Because Christ actually passed from this visible world into that invisible world. He passed over the great chasm that exists between the physical and the spiritual parts of God's universe. No man is able to do that by his own power, by any kind of ingenuity, by any kind of invention. Jesus Christ, though, passed into heaven. Now, the Heidelberg Catechism indicates that there are two aspects to the ascension of Christ. And the first is this. He was taken up from the earth. He was taken up from the earth. From the earth. That's the first aspect. And that explains why he is no longer in the earth. Last week we confessed that Jesus arose from the dead. If Jesus arose from the dead so that he's alive and he arose with an immortal body and immortal life, a new and glorified body, so that he didn't die again like Lazarus, but he's alive and he lives forevermore, then we must ask the question, then where is he? Then why don't I see him? Why can't I see him? Why can't I know that Jesus is here or there and I can go there and I can see him and I can talk to him? We know that we can't do that. We know that no man has ever seen Jesus in the earth these past 2,000 years. Why is that? The explanation is not that after he arose from the dead, he died again. But the explanation is that after he arose from the dead, he left the earth. The earth is under the curse of God. The earth is under the power and the dominion of sin and Satan. And for this glorious risen Christ, who is now righteous and exalted and glorified, he must not remain in the earth. He cannot remain in the earth. Because he is the Lord of glory, the King of glory. And since it was not yet God's good pleasure to create the new heavens and the new earth right at that moment, but rather it was God's good pleasure that millennia would yet pass in which he would gather his church and cause his kingdom to come until the full creation of the new heavens and earth would come. Therefore, Christ cannot remain in the earth, he must depart from this arena of sin and suffering and death, where the devil roams as a lion seeking whom he may devour. He's a conqueror. He's a victor over the grave. And therefore, he must ascend into glory and be exalted for his victory. In the second place, then, the ascension of Jesus Christ means not only that he is taken up from the earth, but also that he was taken up into heaven, into the highest, glorious, spiritual heaven. That was his exaltation, his glorification, his receiving of the reward that was due to him for his obedience and his righteousness. He came into the earth. He did what he was called and sent to do in perfect obedience, and therefore he was rewarded. He was carried up in glory. He was carried up in the clouds. The clouds are very significant in Jesus' ascension. When we look up into the sky on a bright day in which the big, white, fluffy clouds are filling the sky, we say, what a beautiful day. Because we see those beautiful, bright, white, fluffy clouds. And they remind us of glory, heavenly glory and splendor. They elevate our souls and our hearts And lift us up towards heavenly glory. That's what the clouds symbolize. They symbolize glory. And so that cloud that carried Jesus away up into heaven was a cloud chariot. A glorious chariot that he rode as the victor into his heavenly kingdom. Receiving his reward. And when Jesus... Carried up in that cloud, crossed over that infinite chasm between this world and the heavenly world, when he entered into that glorious heavenly part of God's universe, it was not silent. But when he burst onto the scene of heaven, he entered into his kingdom to the sounds of the shouts and acclamation of saints and angels who welcomed him into his kingdom. Shouting, singing, in joy and hope and victory. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the Son of Man and the Son of God who comes victorious into his kingdom. Here comes the Lamb who was slain. Here comes Christ into his glorious kingdom. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and lift them up, ye everlasting doors. Because the king of glory is coming. He's coming into his kingdom. To receive all power and glory. What glory that was for our Lord Jesus Christ. And what an advantage that was and is for us. The Heidelberg Catechism teaches us that this ascension of Christ from this earth into heaven gives great advantages to us. And I'm going to take those each. There are three of them. I'm going to take one in each of my points this morning. So in the first place, the Catechism mentions this advantage, that he is our advocate in the presence of, Of his Father in heaven. He is our advocate. He has gone up from this earth into heaven to be our advocate there. That's based on 1 John 2, verse 1, where the Apostle John writes, If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. An advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. What is an advocate? An advocate is a lawyer, an attorney. It is someone who pleads on behalf of someone else to the judge. Someone who defends someone else to the judge. Who speaks on that person's behalf to the judge. That's what Jesus does for you and for me in heaven. He pleads for us. But the work of Jesus as our advocate is unlike the work of any other defense attorney in this world. Because in this world, a defense attorney seeks to attempt to convince the judge and the jury that his client didn't commit the crime, that he's innocent, that he doesn't deserve the punishment, or that the punishment should be mitigated. But our Lord Jesus Christ doesn't do that. Because we did commit the crime. And he would never try to defend us as if we didn't commit the crime, as if we don't commit crimes as if we are innocent and righteous in ourselves. We're criminals. We're guilty. We're worthy of the punishment that the judge of heaven could give and would justly give to us. That's not what he does as our advocate. We commit crimes against God every day. Do we realize that? Do we understand that we commit crimes? Crimes. Against God. Even though we might not ever commit the gross external crimes of blasphemy or murder or adultery or robbery or perjury, nevertheless, we commit all of these crimes in our hearts. And when we commit those crimes in our hearts, it's just as if we have committed them with our mouths or with our hands. We commit these crimes every day in our hearts. And God, who is the judge, is also the witness. He's the judge, the jury, the witness. As the witness, he sees everything. He sees everything that we do. He sees everything that we think. Every small, fleeting thought that arises that we think no one sees and no one knows And every moment, at every second, he sees it. And he who sees it as the witness is also the judge. So what an advantage do we have that our Lord Jesus Christ has ascended up into heaven to sit at the right hand of this judge, to plead to him every moment, every single moment, to plead with him on our behalf. Not to plead that we have not committed any sins, but to plead with the Father that although we do commit sins every single moment, yet He shed His blood to pay for every one of those sins. And through the drops of His blood that He shed on the cross in His life, He has canceled every one of those crimes that we commit Those criminal thoughts and those criminal desires. And he canceled them. So he pleads with the Father Forgive them, Father, forgive them, forgive them. Although they are sinners, although they continue to sin constantly, forgive them because I died and shed my blood for them. Jesus Christ, the righteous, is our advocate. What a comfort that is. And that does not at all lead us to think, well, then I can sin. I can just keep on sinning then because Jesus will defend me. Not at all. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. But rather, knowing this great truth that Jesus is our advocate, defending us on the basis of his shed blood. We are driven to humble adoration and thankfulness, to desire and to strive more and more to seek those things that are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. But how are we to understand the meaning of the ascension of Christ in respect to his natures, When Jesus ascended up into heaven, was that only a change in location from the earth to the heaven? Or was it also a change in condition? Was it a change in his nature? A change in the very fabric, the very warp and woof of his human nature? That's what Martin Luther thought. As I said in the introduction, Martin Luther was extremely, unbudgingly adamant that in the Lord's Supper, we truly eat the body of Christ and we actually drink his blood, literally. And he simply based his argument on those words of Christ. He said we must interpret the scriptures literally and he was right about that but when we interpret the scriptures literally that does not exclude that we recognize when symbolic language is being used figurative language sacramental language but Martin Luther refused to see that now on the one hand he disagreed with the Roman Catholic Church which said that in the Lord's Supper, which they call the Eucharist or the Mass, the bread, the wafer, actually changes into the body of Christ. Transubstantiation. It is transubstantiated. It is changed in its actual essence so that although it still looks like bread, it's not bread, it's the body of Christ. Martin Luther didn't agree with that. Rather, he taught that the body and blood of Christ are in and with and under the bread and the wine, all around the bread and the wine and in the bread and the wine and with the bread and the wine because he taught that when Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, it was not just a change in location but a change in his very nature. Martin Luther taught Martin Luther, whom we esteem so highly as one of the great reformers of the church, nevertheless taught the error of the ubiquity of the body and blood of Christ. That is, he taught that when Jesus ascended into heaven, his human nature became everywhere present. His body and soul, his human body and soul, miraculously filled the heavens and the earth. And the Lutherans who followed him, for the most part, also maintained that error. They thought that they had scriptural reasons for that doctrine. One text that they liked to use was Ephesians 4 verses 9 and 10 where the Apostle Paul writes, Now that he ascended, what is it, but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens. And then this, he ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. That he might fill all things. And so the Lutherans say, you see, he ascended into heaven so that he would then fill the whole universe with his human nature. They were so convinced of this doctrine that they made it confessional. They elevated it to confessional status. They were so convinced that the scriptures teach this doctrine that they codified it in the Stuttgart Confession of 1559 and in the formula of Concord in 1576, and this became one of the principal differences between the Lutherans and the Reformed ever since. Since the times of the Reformation, John Calvin, on the other hand, and the Reformed have denied and rejected that doctrine of the Lutherans and maintained the truth that in the ascension, the Lord Jesus Christ did not experience a change in his human nature. He remained human, but he changed location from the earth to the heaven in his human nature. The Heidelberg Catechism teaches that to us in this Lord's Day, when it teaches us that Christ is very man and very God. With respect to his human nature, he is no more on earth. But with respect to his Godhead, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is at no time absent from us. His human nature, his divine nature, we must not confuse them. The Lord Jesus Christ is both human and divine. He was first divine. He is the person of the Son of God. The second person of the Trinity. And in his person of the second person, he possesses the whole of the Godhead. The whole divine nature. Godhead means the divine nature. He's God. That's what it means. As the Son, he is God. He is holy, Truly, completely God. He possesses all of the attributes of God. And that Son of God in the Incarnation became man. He who is eternally and everywhere present God condescended and united himself to a human nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And when that miracle of the incarnation happened, God was united to man for all eternity. The Christian confession has been since the earliest times of the church that the Son of God united himself to human nature so that these two natures, although they remain separate and distinct, they are united in the one person of the Son of God for all eternity. They are distinct. They are not mixed together so that it forms a third nature. They are two distinct natures. They are united in the one person of the Son of God for all eternity. That's also our Reformed Confession. The Belgic Confession teaches in Article 19 that these two natures are so closely united in one person. That's the union of the two natures. They are united in the one person. They are not united spatially, as if wherever the divine nature is, there the human nature is too. But they are united in the person of the Son of God. The Belgian Confession teaches these two natures are so closely united in one person that they were not separated even by his death. What was the death of Jesus Christ? Was it the separation of his human and divine natures? No, no, not that. But did not his spirit depart from his body? Were they not separated from, his ch- from each other so that the spirit went to heaven and the body went to the grave? That's true but the spirit and the body are both part of his human nature. When Jesus died on the cross, although the body and soul of his human nature were separated, the human nature and divine nature were not separated. They remained united. So that the Son of God was united to his human spirit in paradise and to his human body in the grave at the same time. They were not separated. That's our Reformed and Christian confession. When Jesus ascended into heaven, his human nature did not change into a divine nature. His human nature did not become everywhere present But his human nature went to a different place. And that brings us to the second advantage that the catechism mentions. What is the advantage for us that Christ ascended into heaven? Secondly, that we have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, as the head, will also take up to himself us, his members. The human nature is not scattered throughout the universe, ubiquitous, everywhere present. The human nature of Jesus is in heaven. He's in heaven. That's where he is. And he's in heaven as a pledge to you. Is a promise to you, a guarantee, that just as he has ascended up into heaven, so you and I will ascend up into heaven. What a glorious comfort that is. The comfort of the resurrection is that just as he arose from the dead, we will arise from the dead. What a comfort. The comfort of the ascension is just as he went up into heaven, so we will go up into heaven. John 14, verses 2 and 3. In verse 1, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Verse 2, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And in John 17, he prays, Father, I pray that these, my disciples, will be where I am, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1, I'm in a strait between two things because on the one hand I have a desire and a need and an interest to stay in the earth and continue my ministry. But on the other hand, oh, to be with Christ. That is far better. We have our flesh. We have our human nature. Our glorified flesh. Not our sinful flesh. Our glorified flesh. We have it there in heaven. It's there. Not just Elijah and Enoch and probably Moses. But Christ is there in our glorified human nature. And that's a promise to us. That he will take us there as well. Therefore, we don't have to be afraid when we come to the end of this life. He will come for us. He's there now preparing a place for us. Preparing a place for you. You've got a place there. and He's getting it ready. And it won't be ready until you are ready. And I am ready. He's making us ready too for that place. He's preparing us for that place. And when we're prepared and ready whether we're young or old, he'll take us there. But is not Christ also present with us now? One of the objections of the Lutherans was that in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, our Lord Jesus Christ in the Great Commission gave this great promise. I will be with you always even unto the end of the world. And so the Lutheran said, you see, is not Christ then with us, even to the end of the world, as he promised? But if he went into heaven, how could he be with us? It must be that his human nature is ubiquitous. He's everywhere. Always. Till the end. The Heidelberg Catechism says, no. That's not the idea. What then is the idea? How is he present with us now in this present time even until the end of the world? First of all, the Catechism says with respect to his Godhead he is at no time absent from us. With respect to his Godhead he is illimitable and omnipresent in his Godhead. Remember, the Lord Jesus Christ, who became man, is still God. And even though his manhood, his human nature is in heaven, not in the earth, his Godhead is everywhere present. And therefore, Christ is everywhere present, in his Godhead and through his Godhead. When we say that we know and we are comforted that God is with us, no matter where we are, that we are never alone, that God is always with us. Even when we are all by ourselves, God is there. God is with us. We can also say, Christ is with us. Because Christ is God. Not because his human nature is everywhere, but because he is everywhere in his divine nature. Christ, the same person who died for me on the cross, is with me right here. Always. Always. Through his divine nature. He is never absent from us. Now, it can also be said that Christ is present and near unto every single human being in his divine nature, even the wicked and the unbeliever. But he is present and near unto them in his wrath. And that's why when he comes again, according to Revelation 6. These ungodly men who reject Christ will cry out for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them, to cover them from the wrath of the Lamb. But Christ is present to us in his grace, the catechism says, in his grace, in his favor, in his love, in his mercy. He's never absent from us. And one of the great ways that he comes near to us is through the preaching of the gospel. Right here, Christ is with us, coming near to us through his words speaking to us and fellowshipping with us and through the sacraments and through prayer. But there's another way. The Catechism also says that He is present with us through His Spirit. Jesus promised in John 14, 15, and 16 that although He was going away, in a little while you will not see me anymore. He also said, Don't be afraid. I will not leave you comfortless, I will not leave you alone. I will send the Comforter to you. And it's expedient for you, it's profitable for you that I go away, because then I will send him to you. I'll send my Spirit to you, to comfort you, to guide you into all the truth, to give you the experience of my love and salvation. And so that's the meaning of that text that we mentioned earlier, too. The Lutherans say, Ephesians 4, 9 and 10, supports their idea that he that descended is the same also, that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. What does that mean? That doesn't mean that he fills all things in his divine nature, because he already did. But he ascended into heaven that he might fill all things. How does he do that? Through his Spirit. Because when he ascended up into heaven, he received the Holy Spirit from the Father. And he poured out the Spirit upon his church on Pentecost. And it's through the Holy Spirit that he fills every point of space in the universe. So that no matter where we go, he is there. Not just around us, not just near us, but in us. For through his spirit he dwells in us and he has made our bodies the temple of the Holy Spirit and he abides with us forever. Truly, we are never alone. And so our Lord Jesus Christ has been glorified. He has been taken up from this earth. He's been taken up into heaven. And that's where he is. He's there. But he's also here with us, never absent from us. And so it will continue until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. And may that day come quickly. Amen. Father, we thank thee for thy word. Thy word of hope and victory in our Lord Jesus Christ, who has ascended up on high in might and led captivity captive. We thank Thee, Father, for the truths of Thy Word, which give us comfort that we are not alone, never alone, but that although our Lord has ascended up on high, yet He is always with us as He promised, and that He dwells in us by His Spirit. May that give us comfort this day in all of our trials and troubles. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.